Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Location. This is the Bruce Exclusive, and here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Welcome back. The Buffalo Bills dropped their second game in a row, falling in overtime to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And it has, of course, set the wheels in motion because it's a complicated game. And so because of that, lots of mixed emotions and mixed narratives are coming out of the game, some of which I am going to address this evening. I'm also going to get caught up on emails this evening. I'm also going to do plurality pie this evening. Some of the stuff that people were asking me, hey, Bruce, why didn't you do plurality pie last week? Because my notes were too long. So hopefully we can get through all of my notes. We can still get that done. The first thing that I want to talk about is that I acknowledge officiating blunders that lean toward one team more than the other. I acknowledge the officiating against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers was inconsistent. The reason why I'm not going to spend the entire podcast railing against the officiating is because any time I spend talking about that is time that could otherwise be used to illuminate things the team can actually control. Now, let's be honest. We have very little control over any of it. As mentioned before, fans have fairly minor control to hold their team accountable by stop spending money, but they rarely ever do in large enough quantities to actually cause the team to change. So the control is really very little. But what I want to do is spend time talking about things the team can actually control. And officiating is not really one of them. Every week after the game, They can go to the league and they can point out calls that they believe were missed. That's about it. They can propose certain changes when it comes to competition committee things. But ultimately, the competition committee is going to do things that don't make sense all the time. So I acknowledge the officiating flaws, but we're really only going to spend this two minutes talking about it. That's about it. Because every minute that I spend talking about this, I could be spending talking about something 
that the team has real control over. And that's about it. I'm pretty much done talking about the officiating. I want to talk about moral victories. It's not something we've talked about ever on this podcast before. And I want to talk about that. Because I've mentioned before that I believe in measuring stick games. Some people will tell you that it doesn't really matter and that all games are exactly the same. I am a proponent in favor of the idea of a measuring stick game. I think if you've played a sport before and you know the caliber of opponent you're going against, I do believe measuring stick games matter from a psychological standpoint in that locker room. I do. I think they matter. And here's something that you're probably not going to expect me to say. Because somehow, I mentioned this before, somehow I got branded the metrics guy. And I'm not entirely sure how that happened because I never really intended for that to be part of the brand. I didn't come in with this, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to carve out my section of Bill's Mafia content creators. That's going to be my brand is the metrics guy. I'm just Bruce. This is, this is the way I actually am. This is the way Bruce is. The name is fake. The voice is partially fake. The level of animation is fake because I need to engage you guys. But the actual person is who I really am. So I had no intention of being the metrics guy. And so because of that, you will probably wonder why I'm saying this. But I believe in moral victories. I don't believe they count as much as real victories for sure. But I think we've all experienced things in our lives where encouragement can be taken from something that actually is a loss on paper. And that's what a moral victory is. I don't like the phrase moral victory, but colloquially, that's what it's called. So that's what I use. But really, a moral victory is simply something that is statistically classified as a loss or a failure. But encouragement can still be gleaned from it. And I believe in that because I don't think all losses are the same. And when you believe in moral victories, what you're essentially saying is that not all losses are the same and not all wins are the same, which tracks with what you already know to be true about Bruce, which is how and why you win or lose are more predictive than the fact that you won or lost. So really, it might appear at first glance that I wouldn't be on board with the concept of a moral victory. But if you dig further in to what Bruce's brand actually is, it actually kind of makes sense a little bit. That not all losses are the same. There's gradients to losses. You can have a loss that you're disappointed about, but there's still things about that loss that are encouraging where you don't walk away as defeated as other losses. Not all L's feel the same walking off the field. Not all taking of any L feels the exact same. No matter what it is. You take L in a player evaluation Sometimes it feels really bad. You're like, oh my gosh, I completely missed on this. Sometimes you're like, yeah, I missed on that, but there's a perfectly reasonable explanation why I did. And it doesn't quite feel the same. Not all L's feel the same and not all W's feel the same. That's the hilarious part about moral victories is the same people who say there's no such thing as moral victories are usually the same people who complain after W's. If all W's are the same, then all L's are the same. And if all L's are the same, then all W's are the same. If all that matters is the win or the loss, then if you win in overtime by kicking a field goal against the worst team in the NFL, it's the exact same thing as blowing out the previously thought to be best team in the NFL. But we know those things aren't the same. 
because not all W's are the same. And if not all W's are the same, not all L's are the same. And if not all L's are the same, then a moral victory has value. I'm not saying we should be thrilled. I'm saying encouragement can be found in the midst of darkness. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can simultaneously be a loss in the L column. And also, there are some aspects to that that are encouraging. But we're not comfortable with that nuance. We're not comfortable with that at all. We do a really good job of drawing false dichotomies in the sports culture. We love to do it. We love to exclude ourselves from other lines of thinking because we think it's conflictual with a different line of thinking. Well, you can't think A, you think B. No, you can think both. But the whole both are true, that's not something we're comfortable with. It can be a disappointing and heartbreaking loss and also have things that are encouraging about it. And that's where I'm at right now. I'm disappointed. I'm not as disappointed as I was in previous losses. I think this loss feels a lot different than the Jaguars game. But it still statistically goes as a loss. So I know that everybody in the world says the same thing when you start to bring up fantasy football. And it's, I don't want to hear about your fantasy team. And I know you don't want to hear about my fantasy team. But I'd like to tell you a little story. I am in a dynasty fantasy football league with a few other Buffalo Bills content creators and or media members. And I'm the defending champion in that league. And this year, I started the year pretty badly from a record standpoint. I had some L's this year. I started three and six in this league. And the thing that was really frustrating for me is I had the second most points scored in the entire league. And I was still three and six. I was losing really close games. Everybody would have their best week against me and I would lose by four or five or six. That feels a lot different than three and six getting blown out all the time because you're able to predict the future a little bit better. I knew this was a good team. I didn't freak out at the trade deadline because I knew this was a good team. And I knew that I got unlucky and some balls didn't bounce my way. And a couple things here, a couple things there. I could have been undefeated. You never know. So I didn't freak out at the trade deadline. I didn't sell hard, even though I was three and six and at the time out of the playoffs. And sure enough, there was regression to the mean, or in this case, progression to the mean. I won five in a row. I'm eight and six. I made the playoffs. Now, I understand that's an incredibly juvenile metaphor, but the whole Bill Parcells, you are what your record says you are, is totally true. This is where people get it wrong. Bill Parcells said, you are what your record says you are. It's true. But you are not guaranteed to be in the future what your record says you are now. Because how you win and lose is more predictive of the future than the win or the loss itself. So yes, you are what your record says you are. The Buffalo Bills are 7-6. and six. But the Buffalo Bills don't have to end the year one game above 500. 
because you can't end the year at 500 anymore. That's not a thing. So it's true. You are what your record says you are, but you are not destined to be in the future what your record says you are now. And I still think the Bills are a good team. You can call me a stupid homer if you'd like. I get used to that. I'm either a homer or a hater, depending on the week, depending on the direction that the mob wants to go. But this is why diagnoses are so important. Why you think the team is seven and six is so important because now that the team has lost two in a row, now that there's panic buttons being pressed all over Western New York and Bill's mafia all over the world, it's really important that we focus in, like I mentioned on last week's pod, focus don't flail. And it's really important we pay attention to diagnoses because the why is predictive. We all know this. I've said it. I said it twice already on this podcast. The why is predictive. And there's going to be a lot of people who want to tell you why. Why the Bills are 7-6. and six. How did we get here? Why and how are more important interrogatives than what? Why we got to 7-6, and six, how we got to 7-6, and six, are far more important than the fact that we're 7-6 and six because it helps you predict the future and whether or not you will be destined to be one game over 500. But dangerous diagnoses this time of year often come from bad use of metrics. So beware. Metrics only tell you what the metrics tell you. And I understand that that's an incredibly boring statement. But let me give you an example. Baker Mayfield doesn't push the ball down the field. That's a comment that I hear from people who are Browns fans. Baker Mayfield doesn't push the ball down the field. That's one of the things they say in regards to the team not being where they want it to be. Ironically, being at 7-6 and six at the time of this recording. Now, if that's the statement and you want to diagnose that, you could use average target distance per pass. You could use percentage of the passes that are 20 plus yards down the field. And that would help tell you whether or not that's actually true. Now, Baker Mayfield doesn't win down the field is a completely different statement. And you would not use the same metrics to diagnose the validity of that statement. You could use air yards per completion for that. You could use passer rating on 20 plus yard throws. That's what you could do. But you wouldn't use the same metrics to diagnose it because it's not the same hypothesis. There's a scientific process, and the biggest mistake we make when attempting to ascertain the why and how behind the success or failures of our favorite sports teams is we do not logically connect the hypothesis with the measurement. If this is a science experiment and I say, okay, my hypothesis is that my dog will float. You go, okay, great. My hypothesis, I think a dog will float. And then you put him in a kiddie pool that the water comes up to his ankles and you go, look, he floats. Well, yes, he's in water and yes, he's not sinking, but that did not prove whether or not he floated. You're using the wrong method to validate or invalidate your hypothesis. And that's what we do. But because I changed just a little bit about the statement, the first statement was Baker Mayfield doesn't push the ball down the field. The second statement is Baker Mayfield doesn't win down the field. 
That's two completely separate discussions. The arguments sound the same, but they're not. And because they're not, the metrics needed to illuminate the truth change. Here's another example. So a discussion was being had on Twitter not too long ago about the quote-unquote last 100 targets for different receivers. For the Bills, it was Stephon Diggs and Gabriel Davis. What you might uncover when you use the last 100 targets is what receiver is more efficient. That is what you are uncovering. But the reason for that efficiency is no longer known. Are they facing lesser cornerbacks? Are they facing single coverage more? Are teams game planning for the other receiver and that attention is benefiting the other receiver who's more efficient? Oftentimes, you will need multiple metrics to eliminate a problem. And sometimes you don't have them. If it can be measured, it should be measured. But some things can't be measured. I understand, again, coming from the metrics guy, right? But there are certain things out there that cannot be measured. Physicality cannot be measured. It cannot be measured. There is a famous Supreme Court case that took place in 1964 called Jigabellus v. Ohio. And in it, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart said the following phrase in regards to pornography. He said, I shall not today attempt further to define the kinds of materials I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description. And perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so. But I know it when I see it. And the motion picture involved in this case is not that. That's how physicality is. It's hard to define, but you know it when you see it. It cannot be measured. So some arguments, we use the wrong metrics to judge. And then other arguments, we try to invent metrics to judge or try and fit a square peg in a round hole in order to say, well, yards per carry judges physicality. No, it doesn't. It measures efficiency but not physicality. You can see it. Now, in some cases, you can kind of get close. Like if you say things like yards after contact per attempt for the running back. Sure, that could help unless they're constantly getting hit in the backfield with two people. Physicality, maybe not so much. You can get close sometimes. But if I want to judge the physicality of a run blocker, there is no metric for that. So if that's the hypothesis, the only way you can get there is through tape. And it's got to be a lot of tape because you have to have significant sample size. You can't cut a clip and just say, look at this one play I found. This is hard. Diagnosing what's going right and what's going wrong is hard. And so we just attach ourselves to whatever looks interesting. But most of the time, diagnosis is complicated and the most dangerous diagnoses come from bad use of metrics we're gonna take a quick break we're gonna come back we got some stuff to talk about regarding bills buccaneers stick with me we'll be right back another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We talked about officiating. We talked about moral victories. We talked about my dynasty fantasy team because I was going somewhere with that. Speaking of Supreme Court justices, I almost put a, are you going somewhere with this counselor right there in the beginning when I did the dynasty fantasy team? But I was like, you know what? I'm already going to make one Supreme Court justice reference during that time. So I'll wait till after the commercial break and then I'll, I'll kind of make the joke, which is what I just did. A couple of things regarding Bill's Buccaneers I want to talk about. If Josh Allen is a rookie and we watch that game, the narrative coming out of that game says, man, you got to protect that investment. That was one of my big takeaways from the game. Is that when I watched the Buffalo Bills against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and I thought to myself, you know, if Josh Allen was a rookie right now, we'd all be going, holy crap, that's a future star. You need to not mess that up. We would have, you got to protect Joe Burrow, Cincinnati Bengals level energy. If Josh Allen was a rookie, it shouldn't be any different now. Our reaction shouldn't be different. Our reaction should be, you got to protect that investment. Josh Allen running the ball, perfectly fine. No problem with it. Josh Allen being the only possible method where you can achieve yards on the ground ever. That seems a little less desirable. Brian Dable calling a bunch of passway plays to open. Sure, I'm fine with it. But we should get some better pass blockers. So for me, that was an interesting way of approaching this game. If I was looking at this, Josh Allen hadn't signed a massive extension. What would we think about the way the team was built around him if we were watching this? Coming out of college, Josh Allen was compared by Mel Kuyper to Matthew Stafford. Matthew Stafford has been known for tough and gritty performances for a perpetually disappointing Detroit Lions team who didn't build awfully well around him and ended up going to a team that would build better around him. I would very much prefer that Josh Allen not end up like Matthew Stafford. Because although Lions fans still speak very highly of Matthew Stafford, Ultimately, his tenure was a disappointment because of the coaches and the team that were around him. Speaking of the coaches around him, let's talk about Sean McDermott. I was critical of Sean McDermott last podcast. I'm going to be critical of him again this podcast. In regards to McDermott punting, one of the things I think is interesting about this conversation is that depending on the win probability model that you used, the punt that everyone is all up in arms about isn't really that bad. I got an email right along this exact same vein from Pete. And Pete said that he had a concern that McDermott's fourth down decisions weren't being criticized with analytical context. And if you go to Ben Baldwin's fourth down bot, for example, which is a win probability bot on Twitter, then some of the fourth down decisions that we're all up in arms about really weren't that big of a difference between 
punting and going for it. Specifically, the one everyone's all upset about had a 0.9% difference between winning or losing. So it was basically a toss-up. It wasn't a significant thing at all. This is what I want to say in regards to Sean McDermott's fourth down decision-making. When he was asked about it, he said the defense getting three straight stops in a row was a big part of why he did it. This is what opens concern for me. Was 2020 only aggressive because the D wasn't good? I said over and over and over again in 2020, McDermott is not a conservative coach because he was making aggressive decisions. Did the Bills defense performing well against bad quarterbacks trick Sean McDermott into thinking it was significantly better than it was in 2020 and as such, being aggressive wasn't necessary? That's my concern. That's what is keeping me up at night, metaphorically speaking. I actually do not let the Bills impact my sleep at all. But if I did, that's what I would be thinking about. That is a course of concern for me. If the aggressiveness was born out of necessity instead of this is the right move, then it's not really truth. Truth is something that is the same regardless of situation. It is universal, unbiased, now and forever truth. One of the things that's popped up in the analytics community, specifically about football in the last couple of weeks, has been the do you go for two when you score and the score puts you down by nine? Do you kick the extra point and go to eight? Or do you go for a two-point conversion, try and get to seven, but if you fail, you're at nine? Just so you know, I'm always in favor late in the game of going for two the first time. I am going to attempt to explain why. John Harbaugh actually already tried it in his Ravens press conference and people still didn't believe him, so I'll give it a shot. You will need a touchdown, an extra point, a touchdown, and a two-point conversion in order to tie the game. And your defense is going to need to make a stop. These things are going to have to happen in order for you to tie the game. If you fail at your two-point conversion on the first touchdown, you now know that you are down by nine with less time left than you would prefer. If you fail at your two-point conversion, the second try, you are now down by two with a lot less time, a lot less time, maybe potentially no time. So if I'm going to have to try a two-point conversion at some point, I would rather try it now. And if I succeed, doesn't matter. If I succeeded later, also doesn't matter. But the difference is if I fail. Because if you succeed, then it's all a moot point. Congratulations, you managed to pull it off. The difference is if you fail, I would rather fail early and know that some crazy crap is going to have to happen. We need to move unbelievably fast on the next drive because we're out of time. We got to go. I would rather have that information sooner rather than later. When asked about that, when Sean McDermott himself did it last year, he said, well, that's what the numbers say to do. 
And I was really proud of that. I was like, yes, cool. I'm on board for this. But what about fourth down decision-making? Fourth down decision-making, was it just because his defense wasn't very good? Because if your defense is better, that should give you more faith to be able to go for it on offense, knowing that your defense can hold up their end of the bargain. So that's my concern when it comes to fourth down. It's not necessarily that one individual fourth down decision. It was based on the why that he said he did or did not do it. Because how and why are more important interrogatives than what? Because they help you predict the future. So why he did it, him telling us why he did it, is far more important than the fact that he did or did not do it because it helps us try to ascertain whether or not he's going to do it in the future. And that's what makes me concerned when it comes to Sean McDermott. But it wasn't the only concerning thing from this ballgame. There was a disconnect in strategic logic. You go the entire first half with no rushes by a running back against a fearsome front four and a blitz-happy coordinator in Todd Bowles who blitzed the ever-living bejeezies out of Josh Allen. But you deactivated your best pass-protecting back in Zach Moss. You didn't have the option. If you decide that you would rather flare a back out and have them catch a pass and you'd rather that be Devin Singletary, so be it. But you don't even have the option of keeping a back in who is your best pass blocking back. And oh, by the way, Matt Breida struggled with Devin White right up the middle on a rep that Zach Moss probably would not have struggled with. I've already taken my L on Zach Moss being RB1 of this team, but no one can doubt he is the best pass protecting back on this team. So if that was the plan going in, you knew you were going to run a lot of pass plays. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you only knew you were going to run a lot of RPOs. You have to plan for that. If you're going to run a lot of RPOs, you have to plan for the idea that those RPOs could end up being pass plays. And in that case, wouldn't you want to have a pass protecting back around? If they show you on the first drive that they're going to let you pass the ball every play on RPOs, then come back the second drive and use the inferior running back because you're not going to hand the ball off probably anyway. And if they shift, then you can shift back to a superior runner. But it's strategic disconnect in decision-making. Let's go for this one. Fake punt. Matt Breida is not part of the punt team. The reason you fake a punt versus going for it from scrimmage is due to the element of surprise. The element of surprise is completely botched by the fact that you put Breida out there who is not a normal member of your punt team, which means any team you're going against who has a perceptive quality control coach or a perceptive special teams coordinator is going to know something's up. That's a strategic disconnect. We want to do this on one hand, but we're not following through with it on the other hand. That's a Sean McDermott issue. That's why Sean McDermott gets the biggest piece of the plurality pie for me this week. Sean McDermott, 31%. Spencer Brown, 17%. He's a rookie. He's going to go through growing pains, but he didn't play well. Tremaine Edmonds, 15%. We're in the middle of Tremaine Edmonds' best year as a pro. That doesn't mean he played well. Because I don't think he did. And it has nothing to do, by the way, with the last play of the game. Expecting Tremaine Emmons to chase down Brashad Perryman 
is a thing. Nothing to do with the last play of the game. But I don't think Tremaine Edmonds played overly well. Brian Dable, 14%. I think he went a little bit too heavy in the pass. Listen, I'm all about pass first. You know that. But zero running back runs is a thing. Now, I know they were running a lot of RPOs. Josh Allen was throwing most of them. But a design run here or there doesn't hurt for a running back. Just to keep them honest. Maybe something that's designed to look, potentially, like an RPO. But the blocking can be set up a little bit more aggressively because it's not. Brian Dable, 14%. Other 26%. So that's 31% for McDermott, 17 for Spencer Brown, 15 for Tremaine Edmonds, 14 for Dable, other 26%. Let's go and finish off our emails. CFAF says... Hi, Bruce Nolan. I hope all is well with you and your family. I have an almighty take. I believe Sean McDermott is at best a decent to good coach and has been overrated in the Bills due to his initial success as well as the Bills' nearly two-decade stint as a mediocre franchise. Some of his biggest strengths and accomplishments have been changing the culture, breaking a 17-year drought, with the caveat that it was a bit fluky, we were 9-7, and and have been fortunate to have several tiebreakers in our favor trotting out a consistently above-average defense year over year, the trademark Sean McDermott clap, his ability to get better and learn from mistakes, drafting Trey White, and saying he's got to watch the tape after the Nathan Peterman debacle. However, the rationale as to why I believe he has never been a great coach would be his situational conservatism, whatever the Bills are in a close fight or a dogfight. Time after time, He's opted to kick field goals over going for it on fourth down whenever we aren't punching down an opponent and it's a real game. Texans playoff, AFC Championship game against the Chiefs, 2021 Colts game, and this most recent Patriots game. Even after the touchdown pass by Allen in the Patriots game, McDermott opted to kick the extra point instead of attempting to tie it by going for two. I believe he should relinquish some control in this area and trust his QB Dable in these situations, and I can't recall many instances where I was glad they didn't go for it on fourth down. In my subjective opinion, I think he's interfering with offensive plays by pressuring Brian Dable to incorporate more runs. There have been numerous instances this season where the Bills run it on second and long despite the fact that we can't run the ball, and I'm sure Dable is privy to this. In multiple interviews, McDermott has emphasized the need to establish a run game, and it makes no sense that they would waste a run play on second and long during a critical drive. Giving Nathan Peterman not one, but two opportunities, this alone should have barred him from making any decisions on the offensive side of the ball. Lack of in-game adjustments. How many times has McDermott been thoroughly outcoached and he simply didn't have an answer? The second half often looked very similar to the first half when very little was working during the first half. While the defense has overall been good during his tenure, they always seem to be weak against the run. It seems to me that if the Bills can't force opposing offenses to abandon the run when they have a solid running back, they often get gashed by the run game. In fact, it seems every season there are two or three games where the opponent runs it down our throats and we are helpless to stop it. Our poor track record against two-point conversions. I don't have the metrics in front of me, but I feel like opposing teams have at least a 75% success rate. I hope McDermott grows as a coach and learns from his apparent weaknesses that could lead to him developing into a great coach. 
Even the best defensive coaches are cognizant of the fact that they don't know much about the offensive side of the ball. And the sooner he has that epiphany, the better we'll all be for it. Thanks again for the great content, Bruce. Sincerely, Seafith. I will openly admit, I think it's a little bit too harsh for Sean McDermott. Sean McDermott was the head coach of a team that had one of the most dynamic offenses in football with the MVP caliber quarterback last year. I don't think that he magically became someone different. I think that he potentially took bad lessons away from the AFC Championship game. I don't think his conservatism this year is as bad as it was in 19 and 18. It's just jarring relative to 2020. If he really does have a growth mindset, then I think you'll see improvements and differences from him moving forward when it comes to those kind of things. I do think Sean McDermott makes in-game adjustments. I think Brian Dable and Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier all make in-game adjustments. You can actually see them making adjustments on the sideline. You can see them with their heads together about what changes they're going to make. I think Sean McDermott's a good coach. Now, like you said, will he ever be a great coach? I'm not entirely sure. But I will say this. Super Bowls have been won with coaches who were a little bit too conservative. Mike Tomlin, Pete Carroll. They've won Super Bowls. I think that we get really caught up in wanting Sean McDermott to be perfect that we're not really cool with him being okay. And right now, I think Sean McDermott's a good coach. I think I've had some criticism for him the last couple of weeks, and I don't think he's done as good of a job this year as he did last year. But Josh Allen's not as efficient this year as he was last year either. But we don't call any, we're not calling for his head. I mean, I don't think anybody's calling for his head. If they are, then I don't think they're paying close attention. Josh Allen's been very good this year. He hasn't been transcendent the way he was last year. But he's been very good. Sean McDermott, very similarly, I think has regressed this year, specifically when it comes to regression. But I don't want great to be the enemy of good. And I don't want us to think we'll never win a Super Bowl, ever. You'll never win it with Sean McDermott as he is. Because similar coaches who are not as aggressive as they should be and are defensive-minded have won Super Bowls. Andrew Pagano says, Hi, Bruce. Let me start off by saying I cannot adequately express how much I appreciate both your podcasts and your food takes. We're all better for it. As for my question, I wanted your take on whether or not the bills are truly multiple. I remember McDermott early on stressing the need to be multiple on both sides of the ball. How is that defined? Is it fronts, coverages, packages? How does this apply to the Bills? For example, I feel our coverages are diverse, but our defense is pretty static in terms of nickel personnel. I think the Bill Belichick Patriots, when I hear the phrase multiple, I greatly appreciate any light you could shed on this. One request. You reach a lot of people in regards to food, and you seem to appreciate sous vide. Could you help an already bald chef from dying even earlier? by helping people understand the difference between sous vide, the method of cooking, and a circulator, the implement used to perform the act. I hope this wasn't too long. Thanks again, Andrew. Okay, first off, 
sous vide is a process, a method. So if sous vide is to smoking, what circulator is to smoker? You don't say, I'm going to go outside and put my meat on the smoking. You say you're going to put it on the smoker. So Andrew's right. The device that goes in the water in order to facilitate a sous vide process is called a circulator. The method by which you are cooking is sous vide. Oh, how'd you cook that? Oh, I cooked it sous vide. Would you like to see the circulator that I used to cook it sous vide or to sous vide it? You can use it as a verb. So yes, I'm on board with that. In regards to multiple, the way that I look at multiple, when I say a team is multiple, specifically, there's a dividing line between offense and defense. You can be multiple on offense. You can be multiple on defense. But just because you're multiple on one does not mean you're multiple on the other. And the way that I look about it is personnel groupings and formations. So on defense, when I say they're multiple, I mean, you might see three, four looks. You could see four, three looks, three down linemen, four down linemen. You see some bare fronts, multiple. It's diversity, diversity in personnel usage and diversity in formations. Same thing on offense. So I would agree. The Bills are not multiple on defense. I don't recall Sean McDermott ever saying they wanted to be multiple on defense. I'll take your word for it. It just doesn't stick out for me as being something that they said they wanted to be like enough that it embedded itself in my brain. So that's multiple for me. Jesse says, hey, Bruce, despite falling to just one game over 500, the Bills will probably still win their last three or four games and possibly win the division by beating the Patriots. Let's suppose the Bills win their wildcard matchup before losing in the second round of the playoffs, ultimately falling one game short of their progress last year. How much capital will the McBean regime still have with the Pagulas? Will McDermott or Bean be on the hot seat next year? This question is influenced by a remark Tyler Dunn made on the last episode of Food for Thought. Dunn described McDermott as a defensive-minded coach who seems unlikely to take Buffalo to the next level. This seemed like a cynical armchair GM assessment to me, but how do you think the Pagulas may see things in a similar light by season's end? Okay, so I will give you my personal belief, and then I will tell you what I think the Pagulas will think, because they are two individual things that need to be delineated between. Progress is not linear. We intrinsically understand it when it comes to games and rookie development, but yet somehow we think overall when it comes to the team, it should be. And that's ridiculous. You cannot say, well, the Bills were in the AFC Championship game last year, which means anything less than an AFC Championship victory is a failure. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Progress is not linear. Be as good as you can for as long as you can and hope you get some luck. That's the way. Be as good as you can for as long as you can and understand that there's luck involved. So if it's me and the Bills win a playoff game and they lose in the second round, I'm fine. We would not be doing a pod this offseason on McDermott or Bean being on the hot seat, if that's the case. At all. Tyler has a little bit stronger of a view on Sean McDermott than I do. Because, again, I've seen coaches like this, like Pete Carroll, like Mike Tomlin, who are conservative coaches a little bit. We've seen them win Super Bowls before. We saw Andy Reid, whose teams were perpetually criticized for throwing the ball too much and being soft, finally break through and win a Super Bowl with the Chiefs in what seemed like his millionth year. 
as an NFL head coach. Now, in regards to what the Pagulas think, I would be absolutely floored if the Pagulas thought that Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean were on the hot seat. A year after signing extensions, getting as far in the playoffs as the Bills have gotten since their Super Bowl run, I would just be shocked. I would be absolutely shocked. The Pagulas don't want to be hiring and firing coaches every four years. They don't want to do that. I would be absolutely shocked. I think the job is absolutely safe, and I think you'd have to have far more disappointing seasons than this. Think about it for a second. How many years has Sean McDermott failed to meet expectations as his head coach? Because expectations minus reality equals disappointment. Disappointment is what causes you to fire someone. How many years has he failed to meet expectations with his team? None. Maybe this year, but this year's not over yet. So if the Bills do this, yes, that will be short of expectations. But will it be significantly short of expectations? No, it's two games short of expectations. I just I, I just don't think so. So I can be critical of Sean McDermott, and I, I have been. Last two podcasts I've been critical. I can be critical and also simultaneously go... I, I think that's, that's a stretch. Christopher said, I sent the same email to Joe Marino as I'm interested in both of your thoughts. I don't know if the two of you might be crossing over this week. I'm just going to tell you right now, Christopher, whatever it is Joe said is probably better than what I want to say. It's just the way it is. So I'll do my best to give you a very raucous silver medal performance here. He says, it seems like our defensive line draws fewer holding calls from opposing offensive lines than average. Is this true? And if so, why might that be? There are two teams in the NFL who have been the beneficiary of holding calls less often than the Bills. The Carolina Panthers and the New Orleans Saints. Then the Bills, Baltimore, San Francisco, Tennessee, Miami. That's the bottom of the list from the bottom on up in regards to the teams that have been the beneficiary of holding calls the least. So your eyes are not wrong in this case. The Bills do get less holding penalties. And I think that there's something to that when it comes to the style of pass rusher that Sean McDermott often has in his arsenal. Not a lot of speed rushers. A lot of fire off the ball, gets your hands into the offensive lineman, disengage, power, you're not going to see as many holding calls because a lot of the most obvious holding calls are hooking calls when someone's getting past you. You get that elbow up under their neck. You get that arm wrapped around the waist. So I do think stylistically, there seems to be a logical reason as to why the Bills would potentially have less holding calls go their way. His second thing is, I love Poyer and Hyde, but the fact that the Buccaneers, the Patriots, the Colts, and the Titans all had their longest runs of the season against us. Seems like it's their responsibility. If a runner does break through into the open, isn't it the safeties who should stop a 20-yard run from becoming a 75-yard touchdown? Yes, is the answer. They are not without fault when it comes to those things. Usually, if you have a team who has a 70-yard touchdown run, a lot of things went wrong for that defense. The defense that that rushing team was facing... A lot of things broke down. And I will say this, 
being the last man to stop that running back is really hard. They have essentially the entire field at their disposal. And a lot of times you're flat-footed or trying to find the right angle. It's an extremely difficult job. So although I agree that ultimately a lot of times there's a safety who's to blame, I usually have a tendency to blame the linebackers more because they have gaps to fill. The safeties don't have a gap where the running back's coming through. They have the entire field a lot of times that they have to cover. And making an open field tackle when the other person can run basically anywhere they want to is really, really difficult. The third thing is, in the Bucks game, I think we should have gone for two after our last touchdown to make it 25-27 or 23-27 instead of 24-27. If we make it, a field goal wins the game. And if we miss it, we know we need a touchdown to win. I don't know. My personal belief is they should have kicked the extra point. Make got it to three. Um, it's a scenario where you don't know how much time you're going to get. And you don't want to be put into a situation where you are forced to go for touchdown. To extend the game. You don't want to be forced to go for a touchdown. It gives you more options later on down the line if you kick the extra point. So I'm completely fine with it that way. Well, we did it. I'm a little out of breath, but we totally did it. Thanks for sticking around for another long-ish episode of the Bruce Exclusive. I feel like sometimes the discussions after losses are longer than the discussions after wins. And I don't really know why that is. Maybe I just get a little bit more wordy after losses. I'm not sure. But whatever the reason is... That's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.